All right, we're ready to jump into the next week of Is It Well With My Soul? How's everybody's souls today? Let me see. Is they, are they good? Okay? So-so? People ask me how I am, and I say, I'm okay. How good do you have to be? Right? So getting by, right? So this morning as we talk about uh, how well is it with my soul, we're going to talk about holiness today and how our soul needs to be holy. Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States, and he loved the moral teachings of Jesus. He loved what Jesus taught, but he didn't believe in the miracles or the supernatural of Christ or the reference to Jesus being God. Didn't believe in that. So he took a razor and he removed the miracle stories and he removed the accounts of the supernatural that were too incredible for his rational brain. And I read an article on this by Peter Carlson, who writes for The Humanist. This is actually from Jefferson's side of thinking. And Carlson says that in this book that Jefferson made called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, he kept the words of Jesus and some of his deeds, but he left out the miracles, any suggestion that Jesus is God, the virgin birth, gone, Jesus walking on the water, gone, multiplying the loaves and the fishes, gone, raising Lazarus from the dead, gone. And Jefferson's version actually ends with Jesus' burial on Good Friday. There is no resurrection, no Easter Sunday. So, um, you know, we criticize Jefferson. When we hear stories like that, we think, how, how could they possibly do that? And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that we still do this. And we do this today. And, and many of us in the room do this without even knowing it. But especially as a culture, we tend to ignore parts of God's word so that it reads the way that we want it to read and we keep God the way that we want him to be. I mean, come on, let's be honest. That's what our culture is doing with God and with his word. We love the fact that God is accepting and God is loving and God is forgiving, which he is. And I've smothered that target. I mean, you know, I talk about God's love and acceptance all the time. Talked about it last week. You know, we talked about his amazing love, his mercy that's extended to us. And it is. And we love that about God. But like Jefferson, we cut out the things we don't like. We cut out the things we're uncomfortable with or we can't explain to people. And we cut out the fact that God is holy and that God wants us to be holy too. So let's talk about that for a few minutes this morning. What's that look like? Number one in your notes, God is holy. Can you say holy with me? Holy, and he created my soul to be holy. And what I want to say to you this morning is that my soul is healthy when it's holy. God said, be holy because I'm holy. And that's not just God wanting us to be like him. It is. But to be holy really means to be set apart, which we are in Christ. When we receive Christ, God sets us apart by Jesus' blood. But it also means something else. It, it means that God wants us to become like him, to be holy like him in our whole being, not just our spirit that's reconnected through Christ, but also our soul and also our flesh. God wants us to move toward holiness in our life. I love this passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5 that says, May the God of peace make you holy in every way. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. And some of you go, good luck with that, right? God will make this happen in us 
For he who calls you is faithful. You know, once God has made you holy spiritually, which again happens when you receive Christ, he's made you right with God, he's made you righteous, then the goal is to make steady movement toward him in our life. We call it sanctification, away from sin into a life of holiness or sinless living. Get it? You sin less as you move toward God in Christ. So holiness leads to sinlessness. And sinlessness leads to holiness. So it's this, it's this process that we're in. And, and Paul gives us a partial list, maybe his top ten things that Paul thinks we should move away from uh, as we're moving toward God and toward holiness. So here they are in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? So don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. What Paul's saying is that if your life still has a practice of these, then it's a possibility that Christ is not the Lord of your life. And so we need to think about this, and we need to look at this. And then verse 11, Paul says, Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So again, remember, we're made right with God through Christ, not by works, right? Lest any man should boast. This is the beginning point. And then there's some gray areas in life that... God lets us decide. And Paul writes about this as well. Verse 12. It says, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. In other words, I have freedoms. But not everything is good for me. Not everything is good for my soul. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. Here's a key phrase. Not becoming a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. And this is true. Though someday God will do away with both of them, right? So this is all going to pass away. Someday food and drink and those things that we have have allowance for, they're going to be done away with. It won't matter anymore. So Paul says, don't become dependent on anything. And in fact, to become holy is to move away from dependence on other things and becoming more and more dependent on God. That's one of the reasons why fasting is such a great spiritual discipline. I think many of us would say it's not my favorite thing, right? Anybody love fasting? There will be a few hands that go up because you've realized the benefits of it. Most people would say, I don't love it. I don't like to go without something. But what fasting does is it helps us break dependence on anything that we might have dependence on. Food, drink, social media. Could be anything, right? But then Paul takes a moment and he points out his number one area in his top ten, and that is sexual immorality. And this is where Paul says a little bit is not okay. This is like putting a tiny bit of poop in a, in a batch of brownies. You can't taste it, but you know it's there, right? And that's what Paul's saying about sexual immorality. He says a little bit is not okay. He says you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. 
And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So once we are one spirit with God, we drag him through whatever we do. Okay? Does that make sense? Once we are one spirit with God, we drag him through whatever we do. God doesn't run away from you when you sin. Okay? He still lives in you. He wants you to confess your sin and make it right and receive that forgiveness and restoration that you need. But what we do with our body has an impact on God, and what we do with our body has an impact on our soul. They are not disconnected from one another. They are connected to one another. You can't do one thing and expect the other won't suffer, and vice versa. What we do with our soul affects our body. So Paul says, verse 18, Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. We would call that being holy. We would call that being set apart for God and for His glory. So why is this important? It's because our soul and our body are integrated. You can't separate out what you do in your body and say, well, I can do that. It doesn't affect my soul. Oh, yes, it does. Things like shame, things like guilt, feeling separated from God, not having confidence to live out your testimony and walk your Christian life. All, all of these things affect our soul. And so we daily need to be asking the question, is this good for my soul? Is this good for my soul? Sin makes the soul sick. Holiness makes the soul whole. And sin is not who we are. Once, once we've joined ourselves to God through Christ, sin no longer defines us. And so we want to be moving. We want to be responding to his love, to his love, and saying, okay, I want to move more and more toward who God wants me to be, not who I want to be, not who my flesh tells me to be. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. He says, you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You're royal priests. You're a holy nation. God's very own possession. I love the King James Version where it actually says, you are a peculiar people. Turn to somebody this morning and say, you're peculiar. Come on, do that. You're peculiar. And it's true. You are a peculiar person in Christ because being peculiar means set apart, being different than the rest of the world, being special. And Peter goes on and he says, as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. Notice he says the goodness of God, not the demands of God. He says the goodness of God. For he has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's wonderful being holy. And once you had no identity as a people, now you're God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you've received God's mercy. 
Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. The world and what the world wants us to do and how they want us to live and what they want us to accept as as normal wages war against our very soul. So be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Let me just recap a little bit what Peter said here. And that is that God wants us to be set apart. God wants us to be different than the world. Being different because of him honors him. Being peculiar. Having Christ in our life should make us different than the rest of the world. And our holiness expressed in love, not expressed in judgment. Okay, here's, here's the disconnect that often the church has had. They've taken this holiness thing and said, we're better than thou. And they have looked down on the world and judged the world. That's not what God is asking us to do. He's saying, in our holiness, love the world. Let them see there's a different way to live that is good, that points to a wonderful God, a God that invites us out of the damage, out of the war of sin, into a whole life, a whole soul. And so we lay down our way so that we can live his way. And Jesus said it like this in Matthew 16, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. Again, just to be clear, when you're in Christ, you'll not be judged for your salvation because you're in Christ. But you'll still be judged for the good or the bad that you do in your body. God will still judge us for that. So holiness, being set apart, I believe is one of the things, like just like Jefferson, it's one of the things that we tend to cut from our Bibles today. That even though our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, we still think we can do whatever we want. That our body still belongs to us. And so we can treat it how we want. We can go where we want. We can do what we want. And we can ignore what Paul said about being a stumbling block to those who have a weak conscience. You know, last week we talked about how Jesus pursued sinners so much that he went to their homes. And he took a lot of criticism for this. Why do you eat with scum? Remember last week? And so Jesus is committed to going and pursuing the lost and going to their territory and being with them and even fellowshipping with them. He pursues them out of his love for them, but he didn't go to the sinners to become more like them. And that's what I think we like to do. He went to Matthew's house for dinner, but he didn't move into the guest room. He didn't say, hey, can I stay with you for a year? You know what he said? He said, come with me. Let me be, let, be my disciple. Let me teach you. Come and live with me and, and travel with me and follow me. And so Jesus visited, but then he left. And not only did he leave, but he invited Matthew to come and be set apart from sin. To be holy. So, no matter how much we cut up the Bible, it doesn't change the fact that God is holy. Amen? God is still holy. We can't change that. 
We may like to soften that. We may, may not know what to do with that, how to explain that. And God still wants us to be holy as his followers. And that's number two in your notes today. Our holy God still has wrath for wickedness. Our holy God still has wrath for wickedness. Wrath is God's response to wickedness. Wickedness is the violation of his holiness. In Hebrews 12, 28, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You cannot shake God's holiness. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. God's holiness still consumes wickedness. Aren't you glad? Because God's holiness was expressed to us through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ consumed our wickedness by his death and his resurrection. But God's wrath did not change. He still has it. And it's still his expression of holiness. And it's still his expression of love. You know, again, we like to talk a lot about how Jesus came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And it's true. And God so loved the world. Yes. Yes. And amen. And Jesus saved us from God's wrath and punishment. But it doesn't mean God checked his wrath at the door. It doesn't. As long as there's wickedness, there will be wrath. Because wrath is God's response to wickedness. Okay, let's talk about that for a little bit this morning. I want us to understand some key differences here. It's important to distinguish between God's holiness and God's wrath. They are not one and the same. Holiness is who God is. It's his nature. It's like the fact that God is love. God is also holy. Just like I am genetically male, I'm XY. You can't change that. I was born male. I will die, I will die male. XY, right? Same as that, in his nature, God is holy. God is holy. God is H. God is HL. Holy in love, in his nature, okay? Does that make sense? Everybody got that? But wrath is different in that it's God's response to wickedness and to evil. Wrath is not something God is. Wrath is something God does in response to something that threatens his creation, that's us, or to something that's in opposition to the truth of his revelation. Something that violates his truth, his revelation. So remember, God is holy, God is pure, God is love. He is good all the time, right? And all the time, God is good, right? So wrath is his response to wickedness. And I want you to get this this morning. We, we think that wrath comes out of anger. Wrath comes out of love. Wrath is God's response to wickedness that is designed to hurt you. How many parents in the room? Let me see your hands. I hope you have wrath for your children's sake. I do. I hope you have wrath for their sake. Sometimes we like to ignore the traits of God that make us uncomfortable, and we disregard the parts like Jefferson did about Jesus that we're not comfortable with. We love the attribute of his love. We sing about his reckless love. When really his love is not reckless, it's agape. His love is agape. It's for your benefit. 
And again, I know that, that Song of Songs is in the Bible. I get that. I know that there's this thing where we like to sing about sloppy wet kisses and that sort of thing when it comes to God. But God's love is really less like a lover's impulsive love and more like a parent's relentless love. Think of it that way. More thoughtful. More intentional. We hear the word wrath and we tend to think irrational. We tend to think full of rage. We tend to think ready to make heads roll when we hear that word wrath. But just like God's love is not a silly, sappy feeling, but rather a consistent desire for the good of his children. So also the wrath of God is not a crazed rage, but rather a consistent opposition to sin and evil. Kind of like a force field. You know, you guys like Star Wars? Kind of like a force field. You can't penetrate it, but out of his force, he works to bring good to you and to me, his children. I think it helps to understand that God's wrath is more pathos than passion. The Anchor Bible Dictionary explains this. Let me read it to you this morning. It says, The wrath of Yahweh is portrayed somewhat differently from human anger in the Hebrew Bible. In some respects, this is essentially the difference between passion and pathos. Passion can be understood as an emotional convulsion and a loss of self-control. We've probably all experienced passion at one time or another in our life. Pathos, on the other hand, is an act formed with care and intention, the result of determination and decision. I'm not saying that God doesn't have passion. He does. But what I'm saying is that Wrath leans more toward pathos. It's an expression of his agape love. It's an intentional act against the evil that is set to harm us. Let me give you an example. Every parent's nightmare. If you, as a parent, discover that your child has been sexually molested, as happened in our family, what would your response be? I hope it would be wrath. I hope it would be intentional. I hope it would be care for your child, confront the sin, and then construct boundaries to keep it from ever happening again. That's wrath. That's a great human picture of what wrath is. That your child will never again be alone with this person. You will protect them and you will help them find healing in their life. J.I. Packer says it like this, God's wrath in the Bible is always judicial and is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Packer points out that we wouldn't want a God who didn't notice evil. Would you want a God like this? Would you want a God that didn't notice evil, just let things go? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. He wouldn't protect us. That wouldn't be loving. Packer says, Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? Moral indifference would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection. So let's tape that back in our Bibles. Tape that back in our Bibles. Okay? James Bryan Smith says, Paul does not describe God as angry in the sense of human emotion. God's wrath is mindful. It's objective. It's rational response. It's actually an act of love. God is not indecisive when it comes to evil. God is fiercely and forcefully opposed to the things that destroy his precious people. And we should all say thank you, Jesus, for being so extreme and forceful about evil. I think another good human example 
of wrath might be mothers against drunk driving. Mad. Heard of this? Mothers against drunk driving. Mad's mission is to end drunk driving, to help fight drug driving, to support the victims of these violent crimes, and to prevent underage drinking. That's the goal. This is wrath. This is a a logical, intentional, decisive response to evil, to the loss of life, to people's lives being destroyed. It's a rational response, an act of love to address the fact that there are 300,000 incidents of drinking and driving every day in the U.S. There are 30 deaths every day due to drinking and driving. That's one every 48 minutes. In the next hour together, there will be a death in our nation. That's 290,000 injuries per year. So what did MAD do when they got mad? What they did was they brought change by exposing the truth about drunk driving. That's the biggest thing they did. They exposed the truth and they marketed like crazy. And in Romans 1, verse 18, the two things that bring about God's wrath are when people suppress the truth, when the truth is hidden, when evil is hidden, and when people engage in wickedness. And that's in your notes today. You can take that home and read uh, what some of those acts of wickedness are, according to Paul in Romans 1. Or you can read it at halftime of the game today. Some nice light reading for you. So what are these two things that bring about God's wrath? Let's talk about those because it's important to understand what, what makes God respond with wrath in our world. And the first one, Paul says in Romans 1.18, is suppression of the truth. Suppression of the truth brings about God's wrath because what that means is that people who can clearly see the word of God and the truth about God in creation, that's what he's addressing, and they continue to say there is no God, that's suppressing the truth about God, he has wrath about this because this suppression keeps other people from coming to him. Now, now think about this. Think about what's been taught in our nation and in our world and in our schools since Darwin. And think about the damage that's been done and the suppression of the truth that's kept others from receiving his love. So he's wrathful about that. And again, obviously, he's wrathful over acts of wickedness because they violate his nature, who he is, his goodness. And I think even more so because they cause damage to us, his children. Personally, I think that's the biggest reason God has wrath about wickedness is because of the damage it does in our lives. And again, when we respond to God's love by becoming more holy, our motivation isn't just to be good. Jesus didn't say, a new commandment I give to you, be good. No, Jesus said, love God and love others. And so our journey to holiness doesn't result in this self-righteous sense that I'm better than the rest of the world. No, it should result in not suppressing the truth, exposing the truth of God's love to a world that is desperate for it. To say, please experience the love of God like I have. Let me help lead you to the love of God. Hopefully you can look at my life and see that it's different than it was before. I've become more whole as a person, spirit, soul, and body. That's what the world's looking for. And they will buy into that. Everybody wants to be whole. And even the things we do that damage ourselves, I think, is part of that journey to try to find wholeness. We're just going about it the wrong way, right? And so then number three, 
Our soul needs to be holy because our soul is designed to worship God. This soul, your mind, your will, your emotions, God designed and God gave us a soul to be reignited, to be reborn, to be regenerated so that we could worship Him with our whole being. That's what our soul is for. And out of that soul that has been regenerated and filled with the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ, out of that soul we then would be able to love one another. That's the simple two-stroke engine nature of your soul. And that's why the commandment of God to love God and love others makes perfect sense when you think about it that way. That you were designed in your soul to respond to the love of God in Christ, to be reunited with the one who made you and designed you, and then to love out of that very soul that's been filled with God's love. It's a beautiful thing. So number three in your notes as we end, we're going to have a little time of worship together. We're going to worship God in His holiness today. And that's number one. We've been designed to worship God in our soul. When we get to heaven, that's what we're going to do. We're going to worship Him, the designer of our soul, and we're, we're going to worship Him. We will worship God for His holiness. Now there will be a lot of reasons that we worship God when we get to heaven But this is the primary reason that the Word of God gives that we are going to fall on our faces before the Lord and we're going to be undone. Every one of us. We're going to be undone by the holiness, by coming face to face with the holiness of God like we have never, ever, ever imagined. It's going to blow our minds when we come before Him that first time. In heaven. And so this is what our soul was made for. Now let me just talk about this for a few minutes. Right now on this planet, we tend to connect to God because of His love. And rightly so. It's His love, it's His kindness that leads us to repentance, right? It's His love that's been expressed to us through Jesus Christ. It's His love that went to the cross and died for us and forgave our sins. And so we depend on His love and we're desperate for His love and we get a pretty good taste of His love right here on this planet. But we only get a small taste of His holiness. And also that comes through Jesus Christ who lived a sinless holy life, was set apart for the purposes of God, went to the cross as a, a, you know, a sacrifice without spot or blemish. Jesus the Holy Lamb of God. So we get a taste of this. But we would not be able to experience God's holiness on this planet, in this body, and live. Like those trees I showed you earlier, we would be consumed by His holiness. God said to Moses in Exodus 33, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God knew He could not reveal his total holiness to us but god's holiness is what will unite us in worship around his throne one day every tribe every tongue and every nation is going to be worshiping the lamb of god and our creator for his holiness listen to revelation 15 who will not fear O lord and glorify your name for you alone are holy All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. 
So what I want to leave you with today and what I want you to think about today is that our soul needs to be holy and our soul is designed to be holy, to be set apart in Christ, to receive him. But also our soul desires to worship God in his holiness. And God wants us to seek him out with that in mind. Not only responding to his love, but also responding to his word and responding to what we see of him in creation, what we have promised about him in revelation. All of creation will worship God in his holiness. You know, a few of the men and women of God have received visions of this over the thousands of years that they've been worshiping. And it was the prophet Isaiah 2,800 years ago or so who had a vision about angels worshiping God in his holiness. And this is how the vision went from Isaiah 6. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord or a vision of the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The way I want us to end today is for us to stand together and to worship. To worship God in his holiness this morning. To do the best we can to connect with the idea. To connect with his word that he is holy. And I know we worship him for his love. And that's great. Do that as well. But let's just see if we can connect our hearts to what the Bible says about God's holiness. And to the promise that we have that one day we're going to worship him this way. Would you stand with me today? Let me pray. And the worship team is going to lead us through this. Oh, Father, creator of the universe, more powerful and holy and filled with glory than we will ever be able to imagine until we see you. God, we come before you as your children. We thank you for making us holy in Christ, for setting us apart by his death and his resurrection. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your love. But God, today we come and we want we want to receive a little bigger taste of your holiness today, Lord. We just want to understand that you are holy and, and that you express your holiness to us in love and that you protect us even now with your wrath, God. And that you stand against wickedness in our life and that it, it hurts you when we are hurt by wickedness and by sin. And so you want us to come away from a life of sin and a life of wickedness. And you want us to move ever more into your holiness. Into a, a kind of living that will make us whole. Not fragment our souls with, with more sin. So God, we just say this morning, make us more holy. Make us more like you. Help us receive what that means for us today. In Jesus' name we pray.